So what I'd like to do is I want to look at three questions that I would say are common but very significant when it comes to the Christian faith. For some of us, they could be questions that keep us up at night. Uh, let me begin with a story. Years ago, I was speaking in, uh, in England, at a university in England. And we, uh, me and a few colleagues, we were speaking to a group of university students for a week-long series of events. And on one particular day, I noticed that we kept seeing this one student who would be asking us lots of questions during the day when we'd be, you know, say, in the coffee shop. Uh, but he would never come to the events. But, but it struck me as odd because he was asking all these really deep questions that corresponded to the Christian faith, but he never came to any of the events. So I finally just, you know, sat down with him. We had a cup of coffee, and I said, hey, I'm interested. Um, why don't you come along to the events? It, it seems like it's right down your alley. You're asking all the questions, but you're never coming to the thing that could be probably most meaningful for you. And I'll never forget this conversation. There we were, sitting in this big atrium. It, it, it was one of those universities that has actually just felt very cold and transient. But I remember having that cup of, you know, hot, that hot drink, and it felt really nice having this conversation with him. And, I, and he looked at me. He was very serious. He got this very serious look, but also pensive. He was thinking. And he said, you know, Nathan, the thing is, I grew up Catholic. I know what faith is all about. And I'm in, the, I'm in the sciences right now. I'm in my second year, and I love this degree. And I see the track that I could possibly go on. And if I go along to these events that you're speaking at, I'm afraid of what will happen. Because if I, if I go towards the faith thing, I don't think I'll be able to do the, the sciences, what I want to do in the sciences. Now, this was, I'm just giving you sort of a vignette here, like a really small snippet of a greater conversation that he and I had that day. But one of the assumptions, in a way, was explicit, but one of the assumptions built into what he was saying there is that faith in God and science are contradictory. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And this is a very prevalent view for many. Some, of, some, some who are Christian actually might think this, but certainly outside the Christian faith, there's this common view that the two, faith in God and science, are contradictory. They're, they're antithetical. They're enemies. So the question is then, what does, what does the Christian faith have to say to that? Well, really, this, this evening, um, you know, I could spend a lot of time just looking at this, but what I'd like to do is I want to give you a type of bird's-eye view. I want to give you sort of a 30,000-feet-level response to, say, what the Christian faith says to this conundrum. You know, how do we reconcile, you know, science and faith? Do, do they need to be reconciled? Are they enemies? So let, let me give you just a few points on which you— the Christian faith hangs a response. One is this. When we're having this conversation around faith and science, we have to ask the question, what do we mean here? What are the terms? What, how do we define the terms faith and science? Now, it's interesting because when you start talking about faith, for many people, uh, they work with the popular definition. Now, the popularized definition of faith is believing in someone or something that does not exist. Are you with me? That, that's what many people believe, and that's what many people believe the Christian understanding of faith is, that faith in God is believing in someone or something that does not exist. But that is not the biblical understanding of faith. That is not the biblical definition of faith. The biblical definition of faith is fundamentally a response to reality. A response to reality. And when you look at the word faith, use, particularly in the New Testament, the word is uh, trust. So let me just back up a moment. What do I mean by response to reality? Well, um, imagine I say to you, I have faith in Phil. Well, what am I saying there? Well, at 
base level, when I say I have faith in Phil, I'm saying Phil exists. He actually exists as a person. And here's the thing, even if you do not want Phil to exist, too bad. He exists. And there's no escaping that reality. But there's more than that. There's more than that. What I'm saying is, yeah, Phil is a person. That's part of what I mean when I say I have faith in Phil. But what I'm saying is, I can trust him. That he's trustworthy. In the same way that this gets to the heart of the biblical understanding of faith in God. When we say, when Christians say, I have faith in God, what we're saying there is, one, there's a reality we're responding to reality that there's this God that exists, yes. But more than that, you can bank on him. You can trust him. That's what the Christian understanding of faith is really getting at. And more than that, faith in God is not antithetical to evidence. It's actually evidence-based belief. Biblical faith is evidence-based belief. Now hold that thought for a moment, okay? Evidence-based belief, response to reality, trusting in this God who is real. Then you look over to the word science. Now, the word science there, that, again, this could be a whole talk of understanding, okay, how do you define science? But let me just give you one of the fundamentals here. Fundamental to understanding scientific learning, scientific discovery is this idea that there has to be a willingness to follow wherever the empirical evidence leads. Fundamental to scientific learning is a willingness to follow wherever the empirical evidence leads. So you hold those two de different definitions. Now I realize I'm giving just sort of a whistle-stop tour here, but it's, it's still important because these are fundamental understandings. Science, fundamental to it, is this idea that you, there has to be a willingness to follow wherever the empirical evidence leads. Faith in God, evidence-based belief. What I'm suggesting to you here is that just by starting out, by defining what we mean when we use the word science and faith, they're not so contradictory in terms. Now, just, there's, that's just one, one uh, basic point. But let's move along further here to the origin of science. Often, it, it, uh, it, uh, again, this, there's this popular notion that when you think of the sciences in terms of discovery and the faces of scientific discovery, we think of people who made these discoveries despite their faith or people who were just frankly opposed to the faith. But nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to the origin you know, the history of science. Just think, for instance, of the people that come to mind when you think of bastions of scientific discovery. Think of a Newton, Boyle, Kepler, Pascal, Faraday. I mean, the list goes on, really. It just goes on and on and on. When you look to those people, you see that actually contrary to them uh, practicing science and making these discoveries, despite their faith. No, it was, it was their faith that inspired them into the sciences. Now, C.S. Lewis, not a, a scientist, but certainly a philosopher and one of the uh, great thinkers of the 20th century, he commented on this point of the history of science, and he said this, men became scientific because they expected law and nature. They expected law and nature because they believed in a lawgiver. Let me say that again. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature. They expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. Now, what is he saying there? What's Lewis saying? He's saying that these people who were bastions of scientific discovery and learning had this faith in a God who was as he says here, this moral lawgiver, this person who ordered the world, the cosmos. And it's that, that belief that led them to try to make sense of this order. The origin of science, but also the definitions of faith and science need to be 
need to be explored. Then you look to something that one person called the limits of science. The limits of science. Now, uh, a guy by the name of Sir Peter Medawar, um, Nobel laureate, he spoke of this specifically and used those terms, the limits of science. And what he was saying here is, when he spoke of that, um, that idea, he said, look, there are certain things that si the science, sciences can do, but there are limits. So let me, let me quote him here, and then let me explain what he means. He said, the existence of a limit to science is however made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions having to do with first and last things. Questions such as, how did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? These questions, Sir Peter Benoit says, he, and by the way, he's not uh, slagging or attacking the sciences. He's just saying, look, this is what the sciences do, and this is what the sciences do not do. The sciences are not very good at answering questions like, how did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? Now, putting it perhaps, perhaps too simply, science is very good at answering the how questions, the process questions, but not so good at answering the why question. The why question in terms of significance. Why are you here? Why do you matter? It, it would be here where Sir Peter Metamore would say, we're seeing the limits of science. So what am I saying here? Well, it, I, as I said earlier, this is very, this, you know, sort of very quick here, but just by looking to these three points, defining the terms, what do we mean when we say faith? Okay, trust in God, evidence-based belief. What do we mean by science? Well, science is, you know, it's this idea of following, following a, a, a willingness to follow wherever the empirical evidence leads. Well, you look at that. Then you look to the origin of science. Then you look to the limits of science. You see that contrary to these, these two things, science and faith being enemies, they've actually proven to be historically dynamic partners. So that's just one question. Let me tell another story. Years ago, I was speaking uh, at a church in a small town. And at the end of the service, a guy came to me. And he said to me, Nathan, you touched this morning on the problem of evil. I'd like you to talk a bit more about that because uh, I have a lot of thoughts about that. And I said, okay, look, absolutely, you know, I, uh, let's have a conversation. But before I say anything, can I just ask you, just can you share some of your story before I say anything? Because th that might, that's going to make the conversation a bit more meaningful. So I answer what you're really asking. So there we were in this church auditorium. By this point, everybody had filed out. It was just this man, man and I talking. And they were turning the lights off in the room. And he looked at me and he said, 18 years ago, my wife and I lost our six-year-old son in a car accident. And we still haven't been able to make sense of it. He looked at me and he said, what do you have to say about that? I was shocked. Truly shocked. Now, in that moment, I remember when I was having this conversation with him uh, personally, my wife and I, we were also working through a, a time of loss and grief and, and mourning. And so I said, look, you know, I said to this man, I said, look, I don't understand the, the kind of loss of losing a son or daughter that you've had to endure, but I know something of what loss and grief are like, and I'm so sorry that you've had to go through this. And then I said, look, the answer to this question is very complex. So many layers, and there's no way this, what, whatever I say here, no matter how long I take in giving this answer, it's not going to be comprehensive. But Christianity does have a response. 
There is a response to this question. So what I want to do here in this room right now, just in the next few minutes, is I want to sort of outline for you something of what I said to uh, this, this guy. Let me just say a few things. One is this. This question of pain, suffering, evil, what makes it so complex is that it's not just intellectual. It's not just an intellectual query. Sometimes it is, but more often than not, it's, it's emotional. It's coming up from a place of crisis. Of it's, and it's personal. It's not only just why suffering, it's why am I going through this time of suffering? But more than that, it needs to be said that this is not just a question for the Christian faith. This is a human question. So no matter what you believe, whether you believe in God, whether you do not believe in God, whether you adhere to a plurality, whether you believe in a plurality of gods, no one escapes the question. The question, the real issue is, what system of belief best makes sense this question, because no one escapes. And I looked at this man, I said, look, one of my colleagues is a guy by the name of Oz Guinness. And Oz Guinness has this brilliant one-line uh, statement, which is, is very helpful when it comes to this. He says, contrast is the mother of clarity. Contrast is the mother of clarity. Now, what does he mean? He means that, well, in this case, when you have this very thorny, jagged edge question, like pain, suffering, and, and where's God in all this? Well, once you start contrasting and comparing different faiths and what different faiths have to say to this issue, you see that there are differences. And the differences make a difference. So, I looked at this man, I said, it's going to sound elementary, but the Christian faith looks at what you've had to go through and it says, you know, the pain you've experienced is real. Now, I said, look, I know that might just wash over you and might not sound helpful, but not every religion will grant you that. I, I said to him, look, there are many Eastern streams, uh, many st streams of Eastern thought that will say that what you have been through is illusory. In other words, the pain you've had to experience is just an illusion. Now, I remember one of my professors saying, look, if the pain I'm experiencing is an illusion, well, it's a very painful illusion. So, so at, a at a livability level, the answer just doesn't shake out. It doesn't, it's not helpful. It's not meaningful. So that's one piece, though. Christianity says pain, evil, those things are real. But not every faith will give you that. But more than that, Christianity says that what you've had to go through, pain, this pain, this evil, this loss is wrong. You know, even when you think of death, for instance, death, uh, uh, Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament says, death is the final enemy. So I looked at him and I said, look, what has happened? This premature death of your son is wrong. But I said, not every system of belief will grant you that. Now, this is slightly technical, but bear with me here because this is important. So for instance, atheism. I mean, hardline atheism will not grant you that. Now, by the way, when I say atheism, I mean people who are truly atheists. Full disclosure, I haven't actually met many true atheists. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean people who truly believe there's no God. Because I actually have many friends who call themselves atheists, really nice people. I mean, hospitable, compassionate, generous people, really good friends of mine. But when we have honest conversations, what I see is, you know, when it comes to values, morals, calling something right, calling something wrong, they're actually smuggling in Christian values there. Because, please listen closely, if you remove God from the equation when it comes to morality, in other words, you know, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, you lose what philosophers would call the objective point of reference by which you can actually adjudicate between evil and good, between what is right and what is wrong. So if you remove God from that equation, in other words, this objective point of reference, you, well, who's going to manage that? Who's going to, who's, 
there's, you lose the point of reference by which you can call something right or wrong. And that, once you lose that, then you lose the question. There's no such thing as right and wrong. As a matter of fact, people who are popular atheists have gone on record. They've been on, I, you, you can look it up, they've been interviewed on radio shows. And one guy uh, by the name of uh, Richard Dawkins, very well known now, he was interviewed live radio station one time, and he was asked about rape, whether it is right or wrong. And he said, I cannot say that it is right or wrong. What I can tell you is, I don't like it. Now, in a way, that, I mean, that should shock us. But in a way, it shouldn't, because if he's, if he's pushing out his view to its logical conclusion, they, there is no framework. There is no logical framework by which atheists, in other words, truly, you know, people who truly believe there's no God, then you lose the, the, the means by which you can actually say such a thing is right, such a thing is wrong. What I said to this guy is, look, Christianity says what's happened to you. This, this, you know, death, pain, the pain you've experienced is wrong. It's real and it's wrong. But more than that, the Christian story doesn't, doesn't just stop there. The Christian faith says that God has gotten involved in the problem. It's not just this theoretical answer by which Christians can say, oh yes, no, the problem is real, the problem is wrong. No, Christianity reveals, the Christian faith tells the story of a God who actually gets involved in our world, involved in the problem. Yes, Christianity acknowledges that there's sin, there's this disorder, this problem, this real problem in the world. There's brokenness outside, and there's brokenness inside. God and Christ Jesus shows us how he thinks and feels towards evil. There's this beautiful story told in John 11. I'm sure some of you would uh, remember it. It's a story of one of Jesus Christ's closest friends, his, one of his close friends, Lazarus. Lazarus is dying. Friends send word to Jesus and say, look, Jesus, you need to come and see Lazarus because he, he's not doing well. He's, feel, he's very unwell. He's going to die. Jesus looks to his friends, and he effectively says, look, we need to go see Lazarus. He's dying. They make their way to see Lazarus with some delay. But when they get there, they're too late. And the friends who actually sent word to Jesus, one is sobbing. She looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, you, you're too late. If you came earlier, you could have done something about it, but you're too late. Lazarus has died. Now, please, please lock in with me here. Listen closely. So interesting that Jesus, in that moment, you, remember, you have to think, there's just such a mystery here that he's fully God, fully man. He doesn't correct her. He doesn't correct his friend. He weeps with her. For those of us in this room right now who know pain, who know suffering, the first response that God gives to you and to me is not a there, there. He doesn't come alongside us and correct us. He weeps with you. The God of Christianity, the ruler of and holder of all things is a God who comes close. And he weeps with you in your pain. No other system of belief comes close to that. Now, Jesus does not stop there. But wow, is that instructive. Instructive for understanding what the Christian God is like instructive to how, how we ought to respond to people in pain. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus is not only sad, but he's also angry. Something that is missed in the narrative, just, you know, something you know, lost in translation, is that in the Greek, the, 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 the language that was written to describe the story in John's gospel, 
is that the narrator uses the word in the Greek to describe uh, what we would translate in the English, furious indignation, to describe Jesus' thoughts and feelings towards this premature death of his friend Lazarus. So Jesus is not only sad, you can feel the pathos as you read this story, but he's also angry, profoundly angry. The question is why? Why is Jesus angry? I want to suggest to you that Jesus is angry because he looks into the face of death and he sees this world and he knows this is not the way it was meant to be. There's this disorder, this, this brokenness, this fracturing of the world. Now what's amazing, I mean there's so many amazing facets of the story, but it's really a matter of moments before then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And really, only a matter of moments then, if you, if you're, as you follow along the story, when Jesus actually goes to the cross to, and takes on the enormity of sin, pain, and defeats evil. And one theologian says that the cross is God's no to evil. So what, what do we do about that problem now? Because there's still evil in the world. There's still pain. Well, I want to suggest to you that the cross of Christ and the resurrection tells us that the world that is is not the world that will be. The world that is is not the world that will be. The, the end story, the end of the story that we see in Revelation gives us so many metaphors pointing to a reality. And in one scripture verse, we see that in the end, he will, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. We have that hope that is uniquely rooted in the Christian faith. So how can you trust God? How can we trust God? I want to suggest to you that, again, as my colleague Oz Guinness would say, we can trust God in the dark because we are not in the dark about God. He has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This God who knows pain but also has triumphed over it. He's defeated it. Now let's just stop there for a moment. When you think of the person of Jesus Christ, have you, have you ever been challenged about that? Have you ever been challenged or ridiculed for believing that in Jesus? One of the big questions that keeps coming up for air is this idea that Jesus Christ actually lived. I saw an article just the other day of someone saying, you know, we can't really be too sure about Jesus Christ actually living, you know, or even, you know, that he was a person. Um, I remember I, uh, I, I worked for the Toronto Blue Jays baseball club. I worked there uh, for four years, and I worked on the ground crew. And I'll never forget one day I was working on the ground crew there. Uh, there, if you've been to the stadium, there's Rogers Center. Uh, effectively, the ground crew, you know, we're, we're just, you know, we're guys who work with dirt and clay. I mean, ground crew is a very professional word for it, but really, you're just, you know, working with clay and dirt and doing all the field repairs. One day, though, there we were on the field during the day uh, before the game, and I was at home plate working on uh, with the clay and doing field repairs with a colleague. He and I were there working on this, and he looks at me, and he says, Nathan, look, I respect what you believe and how you live, but there's one thing that you believe that I just, I don't think I would ever be able to believe. And I looked at him and said, what's that? And he said, it's this whole idea that Jesus Christ actually lived. He said, because if I have it right, is that, you know, approximately, you know, give or take, you know, 2,000 years ago? 
And I said, no, you're absolutely right. That, that, you're right with the timing. And he said, look, we can barely know what happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago. How, how could we ever know that Jesus Christ actually lived? Now, how's that for a question? Now, just think, right? We're not in a classroom. We're in this baseball stadium. Like, it's, I'm not feeling too academic in this moment. I'm feeling sort of hopeless. Uh, and I remember looking around in the, in the stadium, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is a really good question. I don't know what to say. I, don't, I didn't know what to say. And so I'm thinking and at the same time praying and saying, oh, what, what could I say to him? And then I looked to him and I said, look, work with me in this scenario. Imagine this year. Now, this was 2007, okay? 2007. I looked to him and said, look, imagine if the Blue Jays win the World Series this year, okay? It would be glorious. It would change your life. It would change my life. We would be forever changed. Now, fast forward 20 years from now, you and I come down to the stadium, okay? And it's the first time we've come to the stadium since that, you know, this year. The Blue Jays won the World Series. But we come down the stadium with our sons in tow. And we, and we have field-level tickets. We come down, and we, you and I start talking about the good old days. You know, 2007, when the Blue Jays won the World Series. And our sons then break out into uncontrollable laughter. Because they know that the Blue Jays are really, they're a bad team. Okay? And you and I, I look to my colleague and I said, you and I, then we grow increasingly indignant. And we say, hey, the Blue Jays won the World Series. And they start laughing and say, yeah, right, like they could ever win the World Series. Then you and I say, look, look up at the banner. See, 2000 seri- 2007 World Series champions, Toronto Blue Jays. They look at us and say, you know, look, anybody can put a banner up there. You just have to, you know, get enough money and someone can put a banner up there. And then you and I will look to them and we say, okay, forget about the banner. We were there. We saw it with our own eyes. We were there. We were in the photo bay. We were there with the photographers. We were in the same area. We were as close to the action as you can get without being in the action. Then what would they say? Well, what I didn't know in that moment, in that conversation at the Rogers Center, is that in, in, in a small way, I was using a, a similar grid to what historians use when they try to figure out the veracity, you know, in other words, the trustworthiness of history, whether something actually happened historically. How do we know Jesus Christ actually did live? That he was an actual historical person? Well, historically, we look to what was written about him. And one of the the beautiful things, by the way, about the the life and teachings of Jesus Christ is that, yes, you have the Bible, but you you have extra-biblical attestation, accounts of Jesus' life. You're not just hung on the Bible. You have outside the Bible resources. For instance, you have first century historians, many, notably a guy by the name of Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, first century. Josephus, who was a Jewish first century historian. What's very interesting is you will be very hard-pressed to find anybody who actually studies or has a PhD in ancient history to deny the existence of Jesus. It's just, it's just not a talking point. You, know, you, you, you skip along to other tougher and debatable and contentious issues. But the existence of Jesus Christ as an actual person in first century Palestine, it might be debated on a new, in a New York Times op-ed column, but it's not going to be debated when it comes to people who actually live, sleep, eat, breathe ancient history. It just isn't. It's, uh, you'll be laughed out of the room. Uh, one of the friends, uh, one, a friend of our ministry at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries is a guy named John Dixon. And he, he's Australian. He has his PhD in ancient history. John Dixon, it was a few years ago, but on his Facebook account, he typed on the screen and he said, look, anybody who has a PhD in ancient history and holds a university post, make yourself known if you do not believe Jesus Christ ever lived. And once you do, I will eat a page out of my Bible. Now, do you, 
Do you want to ask whether he had to eat any pages out of his Bible? Zero. No one got back to him. Because there is none. There really are none. You'd be very hard-pressed. And I've, I've, I've actually spoken to skeptical scholars who will laugh at this. In other words, people who are not Christian, they're not sort of in a conservative evangelical camp. They are places like Duke, at Yale, at Princeton, places uh, that are not sort of the normal conservative evangelical spot. And they will laugh at you if you actually say anything along the lines of, oh, he never lived. They'll say, yeah, 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 no, he lived. Let's get on to something like more sensible and more meaty because we've already, we already know that we, there's just too much compelling evidence. You have, you have evidence like the historical context. The New Testament, for instance, speaks of real places, villages, cities, roads, lakes, mountains that match up to the time of Jesus Christ. Customs from the first century mentioned in the scriptures that match up with the time of Jesus to the outside historical context that we have. Passover, purity, Sabbath, divorce, law, institutions, the synagogue, and the temple, they all line up when you put the historical test to where Jesus is rooted in history. It all matches up, and it's very, very compelling. But let me, let me sort of pinpoint here and sort of land the plane. The New Testament is not actually after arguing for the existence of Jesus. It assumes that. As a matter of fact, it's now in, in scholarly circles. You look at uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their biographical accounts of Jesus. But they're not really after telling you, hey, look, look, this man actually existed. No, as one of my professors once said, it, the, the Gospels are like a whodunit type of detective novel, except they're a who-is-he genre. The million-dollar question of the Gospels is who is he? And if you get the answer to that question, you get the whole thing. But you have to answer that question. Who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus? Now, here's the thing. If you want to know the Christian God, you have to get to Jesus. The scriptures describe Jesus as the image of the invisible God. He is a God who is great. He is almighty. He holds all things together, but he's also a God who comes close. He's a God who's personal. He speaks to us through creation. He speaks to us personally. He is also with us. He never leaves us. He's the one who pursues you. Yes, you might be looking for him, but when you come into contact with him, you, you realize that actually he's the one who has been looking for you. He's in search of you. Now let me just pause there for a moment. Have you ever heard the, the, you know, the question or sometimes a statement which says, you know, all religions, you know, um, you know all paths lead to God? Have you ever heard that before? Maybe you've said it before. It's a, it's a pretty popular statement. Um, you, know, all, you know, all paths lead to God. You know, hey, you're a Christian, it's fine. And, you know, hey, look, you're a Buddhist, you're a Hindu, you're a Muslim. Hey, we're all, like, all on the same path. We're going to get to the same thing. The interesting thing about Christianity is when you apply the, the, the picture to that logic, there's a disconnect. It doesn't, actually, doesn't, doesn't work out when you, when you look to the Christian story. Because apply that, apply that picture, path to God. The story of Christianity will say, okay, let's work with that, a path to God. The difference is that when you go on this path to God, you see that there are already footprints. The path has already been trod. But the footsteps are pointing in your direction. No other religion, no other faith, no other system of belief will tell you that. Only in the Christian faith do you see this unique truth of a God who comes after you. He's in search of you. 
every other religion will say we somehow have to figure it out. We have to dig down deep. We have to become smarter. We have to get more knowledge. We, have need, we need to do better. Only the Christian faith will say, God extends a hand to you. He comes after you. Do you know that God? Do you know this God? Let me close with a story and then we'll move to Q&A. Just a few years ago, I, uh, my father passed away. And it was an utter shock. Uh, my, my father was healthy. He, uh, he was in real estate and, you know, even to um, the day of his funeral, the day before his funeral, a house that he had on the market, it, uh, it sold. So he was still going like full tilt in his uh, job. Uh, but it was just a tragic loss. It was a shock. We had no idea. And uh, approximately six months after my father passed away, I remember looking through my phone, and I, I just remember uh, looking at the voicemails, and I came across a voice message from my dad. And I was in my office, and I just, I was there by myself, and I hit the play button, and I just listened to this voicemail from my dad. I think 22 seconds long. It ended, then it hit the play button again. Listen to it again. And I probably did that five times. And if you've ever experienced loss, then you, there, for me at least, there comes a point at which just all this flood of emotion and thoughts fill your being. And I was overwhelmed. The reason why I kept playing that voicemail is because it wasn't only my dad's voice. It was that, it was my dad's voice and he was talking to me. He was talking to me. And when I think of all the different things that I miss about my father, one of the things I miss most is his voice. Hearing his voice, there was a, there was a strength in my father's voice. It was a vivacity. It was there's something alive about it. And I don't hear that voice anymore. As I thought about that loss, which is real, uh, the Christian faith tells me I will see my father again, and that hope is real. But as I thought about my Christian faith and how it speaks to this loss. The Christian faith also tells me that there's a God who speaks. He speaks to me. He speaks to you. And his voice is real. Do you know that voice? One other thing I really miss about my father is just his presence. Not necessarily, you know, what we would do. I miss that, of course, but just him there. Sometimes it would just be, you know, when I come to the house, I could see him, you know, he would be in the living room or he'd be in the backyard and just knowing my father's there. My father's here. And so I think of my father's voice and I also think of his presence and I miss those two things just so, so much. The Christian faith also speaks here too. The Christian faith tells us that not only do we have this God who speaks to us, but we have this God who is with us and his presence is real. Do you know his presence? I would encourage you this evening to think about that. Think about that. God wants to fill your life with his presence. thing is we keep going with our buckets of life to wells that have dried up. When actually he's the only one who actually has the river of life. He is that river. Think about that. 
Maybe in this moment, God is speaking to you right now. And if that's the case, I would say don't, don't suppress it. Don't suppress it. This is a special moment. Respond. Respond to it. Say yes. Not, not because I'm pressuring you. I'm not pressuring you, but I'm saying because it's, it's the only thing out there that offers us life. We just keep on searching, and the search is futile without him. He might be speaking to you. I would say respond to him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you're here. I pray for each individual in this room right now. And Lord, I pray that they would respond to you. We come from so many different places, so many places of hurt, of distraction, of anxiety, of confusion, of pressure. Lord, I pray that in this moment, those things, those things that don't really mean anything at the end of the day, I pray they would just be pushed aside. You'd help us to hear you, hear your voice speaking. And Lord, I pray that hearts and minds this evening, right now in this moment, will respond to you. Amen. Now, we're going to enter into a time of question and answer right now, but there will be an opportunity this evening to, to pray, and leaders, there are leaders and counselors here who want to pray with you. Um, so we will, that's how we will end the evening, but right now we just have a time of question and answer. So if you have questions, uh, I believe, is there going to be a microphone that, uh, I think there's going to be a microphone that's sort of roaming around here. But also is, Phil, is there a text in? Okay, that's, so the text in number uh, um, is 604-787-5316. So you can text or you can come to the microphone and ask, ask away. There's no question off limits. Uh, if you want anonymity, then please go to the text platform 604-787-5316. Um, we can start. And I know that the first question, the first question is always the hardest one to, to get out of the way. So let's just go to the second question. Speaking, I oh, sorry. Can you, can you just repeat the section about like how you answered the man's question of, of how he lost his son and how to go through suffering and pain uh, in your sermon again? You just want me to repeat what I said there? Um, just like a little summary because I kind of forgot it. Like, oh, summary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Can, can you remind me your name? Elliot. Elliot. Sorry. Elliot, okay. It's a great question. Really what I would say there is one, you know, when we come to the issue of suffering and pain, it, it, um, it's not just sort of, okay, how do we answer it? Okay, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Uh, it, it, it's not that simple. Uh, it's very, very complex, and not least because what I mentioned before, it's, it's both intellectual and emotional. We are involved in the problem. What I said is, look, you, we have to con- uh, compare and contrast here because... One, Christianity is not the only one that has to respond. Everybody responds. Irrespective of what you believe, you've got to respond. So that's one thing. It's not like the Christian faith is the only one that is sort of in the corner. No. Everybody has to respond. The question is, what faith, what system of belief best makes sense of this issue? When it comes to Christianity, a lot could be said. What I said to this person in that moment was, one, Christianity says what's happened is real. In other words, the problem that you're going through, it's valid. Two, the pain, evil that you've had to endure is wrong. But three, it doesn't stop there. God has gotten involved in the problem. 
Is there a spotlight now on? There's this heavenly spotlight on you now. Um, no pressure. No. Uh, but what, what that means is the, 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 the response of Christianity is not just sort of descriptive. It's not just saying, okay, look, yes, it's real, it's wrong, but actually, no, God has actually gotten involved in it. And we see not only a theoretical response, but a lived out, embodied response of how the Christian God thinks towards suffering. He gets involved in it. And we see that, particularly in that story of Lazarus, how he's weeping, there's this sadness, but also God in Christ Jesus does something about it. He goes to the cross. One of the things about the cross that is often missed is, especially in movies, is you just see it as physical. You know, it's very physically painful, which it 100% is excruciating and really unimaginable. Even movies, I don't think I've seen a movie yet that actually truly describes it, in large part because if they did, it would, just, it, it would break every kind of rating. It's, it's what the Romans did. Uh, um, there's a reason why, actually, the cross was never used, and I believe it was also never talked about in Roman, with Roman citizens because it was just such a vile thing that they did. But that's what Jesus endured. But what I was going to say there is, it's often mistaken to be just some physical thing, but in the cross, he's also taking on the enormity of sin and evil, and it's as if God is saying in capital letters, no to evil. But then through the resurrection, we see that there's life after death. That the world that is, the resurrection tells us this much, that the world that is, is not the world that will be. And there's hope in that. That yes, Christianity says, look, the world in which we live is broken. It's damaged. It is fractured. But it's not the way it will be. When he comes back, all things will be made new. The wrong will be made right. And there's hope there. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, it's a good question. Hey, another question into the spotlight. Wow, you got a spotlight? This is cool. All right. Uh, hi, my name is Kenneth. Uh, Going to hit you with some real depressing stuff. But um, so earlier you were like, uh, Christianity is one of the few religions where, or only religion where, uh, God comes down to, like, weep with you, which is something that I wish I could agree with. I mean, I'm sure in, like, a lot of scenarios it is, but for myself, which, again, there's a lot of people here, so I'm not going to get into any specifics, but for myself and some other people I've known, that was not the case. It rather felt like abandonment. Mm. Now, mm. I, I don't resent God or anything. It's just that, like, that kind of conflicts with what like my own experiences and what some other Christians I know have experienced. So I just want to know your take on that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I, uh, so thank you for asking it. I admire you asking that. What I meant really in that, uh, in saying that, is when you really compare uh, the person of Jesus Christ, which the Christian faith says it's, when you look to Jesus Christ, it's God in flesh. That's the language, say, in John's gospel, that the word became flesh. But then also Paul uses the language of the image of the invisible God. <laughs> so when you look to Jesus, effectively you're saying, here is God in the flesh. No other system of belief will grant you that, that of the story of a God who actually comes to us in the flesh and so what that tells us through the life and also the teaching of Jesus Christ, the relationship that he invites us into is profoundly intimate. So in that case, I was speaking specifically about the historical piece. Now, what you're saying, I think is a, a good, uh, I think is very important. What you're saying is, look, there have been moments when, you know, in my life, there's, there's been abandonment, but f flat out abandonment. Now, am I, am I getting this right so far? Yeah. Okay. Now that, I would say, yeah, I understand that. That's real. What I would say is Christianity, um, well, let me say a couple things. One, that's a question that I, I've wrestled with. So just sort of put it out there. It's not like, uh, you know, often when people ask you know, me and my colleagues questions, it's, it's, it's as if I think sometimes the, there's, there can be this false understanding that 
we're not actually dealing with these questions ourselves. Oh, I mean, that's a, this question that you asked is a question that I've wrestled with. It's a very, very good question, and it's a tough question. What I would also say is not only, okay, I've wrestled with this, it's a real question on that level, but also people of the scriptures have dealt with this. David, David in the Psalms, who wrote so many of the Psalms, he's asking these kind of questions that truly, if you read the Psalms, you're almost like, whoa, David, whoa. You know, that's a bit much. You almost went <coughs> a bit too far there. <coughs> Paul, Paul even, uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul, it, 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 there comes a point of saying he, he doesn't understand certain things about God. Uh, there's one point specifically, I think it's uh, in chapter 18, Paul is talking about this thing called the thorn in the flesh. We don't know the identity or what this thing is that Paul's talking about, but we know whatever it is, it is excruciatingly painful. Whether it be psych psychological, emotional, or physical, it's extremely painful. And um, the answer that Paul gets is God doesn't, uh, God doesn't take it away from him. God doesn't take the problem away. But the response he gets from God is... Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. So what do we do with all that? Well, let me take it a step further. Jesus, on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what I, I don't know if you've seen what I've done now. I've just taken what you've asked, and I've made the question, even stronger because the Bible does that. I think that's one of the most compelling things about the Bible. It doesn't suppress or hide the scars of its characters. When you look to the person of Jesus, you see a, uh, this real, fully human person in the garden, Jesus saying, look, if this cup can pass, let it pass. But not my will, but your will be done. What is this telling us? It's telling us that one, people have struggled with this issue of, of God not being there with them. What I would say is a couple things. God is with you, he's with me, and sometimes we feel his presence, and sometimes we don't. But just because we don't feel his presence does not necessarily mean he is not with us. Now, let me make sense of that for a moment. Jesus Christ, okay? Now, there's a lot of complexity and mystery here. And when I say mystery, I mean uh, it's difficult to understand. The reason why I say it is because often when we think of mystery, we think of, oh, the, the sort of synonymous with being bogus. Mystery in this sense means it's something that's very difficult to understand. But here's the thing. When Jesus is saying that, what the... The amazing truth of the Christian faith is that everyone would have said of all the places in the world at that time when Jesus is on the cross, God was not there. But the profundity, the amazing news of the Christian faith tells us that that is exactly where God was in that moment. But if we were there, we would not have said this is where God is. But the Christian faith tells us that that was God on the cross. What I would like to say to you is the problem is real. But I think Paul gives us a glimpse into how we can make sense of it if we are in relationship with Jesus. One, his grace is sufficient, his grace is real. His grace is actual. But also remember that when it comes to feelings, feelings are so important. They are integral to who we are as human beings. But feelings are not always trustworthy. So the Bible tells us that many of the people that we see have actually dealt with it. I've wrestled with this. The problem is real. But God's grace is actual. Let me just close with this. One of uh, my senior colleagues is a guy named John Lennox. He's a scientist, mathematician, but he has a friend 
who was actually beaten up and also imprisoned for being a Christian. And after he was freed from prison, years after that, he, he and John were having uh, a cup of coffee together. They're sitting across a table, and John looks to him, and he's just asking all these questions of what it was like in prison. What was it like to be beaten up just because you were a Christian? And then this guy looks across the table to John, and he says, John, do you think you could have done what I did? And without even uh, batting an eye, John says, no, I don't think I could have done what you did. Then this guy looks to him and he says, neither do I. I don't think I could have done what I did. I, you know, I have such a low pain threshold that even when, if I cut myself shaving, I wince. But then he said, but John, the grace that God gives is real. It's actual. So what I'd say to you is, problem is real, but the response from God is just as real. His grace is sufficient. There might be problems that we live in that are very, very complex and just seem like a mess, but God is there in that, and he gives us this grace, and his grace is actual. Yeah, thanks for your question. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Hey, Nathan. My name is Leon, and um, awesome talk, by the way. Thank you. Um, I got a question for you. So I grew up Catholic in the Philippines, and I feel like everything was sort of a practice, mundane kind of thing, and I just felt like, you know, growing up, it was something that was just like, do this, do that. It wasn't, I guess, purposeful. Now that I'm growing and, you know, getting challenged, my faith has been growing and growing stronger. Mm. But I guess, like, my first question is, what, what really is the difference with Catholic and Christianity? And I guess my follow-up is, I feel like I need to get, um, sorry, I need to, uh, oh, sorry, I need to get baptized again. Like, I was baptized when I was an infant, but I feel like now that I'm, I'm accepting him more and more now, mm. I feel like, should I get um, baptized again, or I don't have to? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, good questions. Uh, I would say, look, that, you know, it's great news. I'd say just a huge congratulations on that, you know, that you're coming closer and becoming immersed in the Christian faith. So that's, that's great news. Um, I think what I would say when it comes to baptism, uh, I would say, yes, by all means, please explore and be thoughtful about moving forward with that. And what I would suggest is, particularly be in conversation with your pastor. I think that would be, if you have not already done that, I would say that's a really good and meaningful next step to explore. And I think that you, you would probably get the most, you know, probably the most helpful advice and counsel through that route. In terms of the difference of uh, what you mentioned, like, like the first part of your question, the difference between Christians and Catholics, uh, that's a huge question. But what I would say is, in some ways, it depends what you mean. Because for many, I have Catholic friends, and we're hard-pressed to find out the differences when it comes to fundamentals. What do I mean by that? I mean virgin birth of Jesus Christ, deity of Christ, meaning he, Jesus Christ was, is God. Third, resurrection, salvation comes in and through believing in the person of Jesus Christ. When you look at those fundamentals, uh, the, the question is right there. You know, uh, if there's deviation from those things, that, that's a question. But, um, and I'm, uh, I think there might be, but I would think, I guess my question would be, depending upon what strands of Catholicism you're talking about, sometimes there aren't many key differences what you may find sometimes is liturgical expression, how those things are expressed uh, in services. When you come down to beliefs, uh, that's uh, sometimes the differences are harder to see, harder to find. 
Um, I, I, for instance, I just know when it comes to even like Catholic theologians, Catholic philosophers, there are many who have actually done a great job, not for the sake of uh, Catholicism, but what I'm saying is for the sake of Christianity. They've really helped the cause of Christian witness. So I would probably be keen to maybe take a step back and say, let's see where the common ground is, because I actually think there is a lot of common ground. But then I would say, yeah, okay, where there are differences, let's talk about those, because in some places there are differences. Uh, but um, what I would suggest is actually there, there, there's more common ground than is often uh, credited. Yeah. Awesome. Great question. So, I, I, but coming full circle, I would say, uh, regarding baptism, absolutely go forward with that, but I think the most thoughtful way to do it would be engage your pastor in that conversation, and uh, I think that's a good next step. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Great question. Okay, so I'm actually, I'm getting a lot of questions, 